I would like to introduce the next speaker, uh, Dr. Farner. He attended the University of Illinois Medical School. He completed residency in both pediatrics and dermatology at Duke University. He has practiced at Christie Clinic in Champaign, Illinois for the past 23 years and has uh, two PAs. Please welcome Dr. Farner. Thank you for inviting me here, Gina and everybody else. Um, I hope I give you uh, enough uh, content to make it uh, a valuable talk. I don't practice pediatric dermatology only at this point. I do uh, just a little bit of everything, but it's, uh, I titled this, Oh My Goodness, it's a child for people who don't see children every day. Uh, those of you who have children, I'm sure, are much more comfortable than those without. Um, and I'll start out a little slowly and then we'll go fast. The problem is, in an hour, there's just too much to do, so here we go and I'll try to keep moving. So there are all sorts of reasons to not want to see a child because they're so difficult and they change so quickly, all the way from uh, brand newborns, infants, babes in arms, the toddlers that run around the room and hang on your, uh, you know, your bovie and slam the doors, and then you've got the school-age kids and then the sullen teenagers. Uh, the good news, I don't have to talk too much about the teenagers, there is an adolescent dermatology uh, talk coming later. S the challenges vary with the age of the child. Um, you know, parents have uh, expectations, and if a patient comes in and they're 30, 40, 70, and you're dealing predominantly with them, it's one thing, but there are all sorts of uh, interpersonal arrows going back and forth between, uh, you know, the baby, the mom, the grandmother, nightmare for me, immigrant, whole different feelings about uh, uh, childhood perfection, all that. So, you've, um, so all those different relationships that bounce back around in the room, you have to, if you're aware of them, you'll be able to sort of say, uh-oh, who who, who's, the, who's the power person here? Who do I have to mollify? Who do I have to perfectly satisfy? The other problem is with children, you don't have the advantage of the development of time for whether or not this is just a dermatology problem or if there really are long-term serious systemic uh, issues that are going to come to play later. Obviously, same is true for a melanoma in a 40-year-old, but uh, when you're looking at things in children, you can't say, oh, don't worry about that. They'll grow out of it. Uh, uh, sometimes that might come back and uh, cause a little trouble. So when you see an infant, the person, come, person parent comes in, and of course during gestation they expect uh, personal, uh, you know, a perfection of this uh, sweet baby. Uh, the anxieties in the family when anything goes wrong, uh, the uh, and the fact that you're not just dealing with biology, the third line here, that you're doing predictive biology. What will this mold do? You're used to doing that, but you're actually now responsible for this child from when they see you at three until what that mold does until you retire. And procedures add a certain difficulty, and we'll talk about that briefly. And then when you throw in the toddler, you have to throw in the fights like a wildcat if, if you have to do some procedures. So that's another issue. Teenage, they're more intelligent. Uh, they've got autonomy issues and how the parents interact with them. You know, what's the worst they can do? Take away the car keys or the iPad. Um, Ah, I put in a few things that I called survival tips and things that you'll want to go back to when you're sitting in the room and uh, you've heard so many sentences and opinions that your head's spinning. Uh, the anxiety of the parents isn't reality. You know, they're going to keep trying to pump their reality into the room and whatever's going on, uh, you're in charge. The other thing to remember is you can't know everything. So. Uh, if you're not comfortable with something, there's never any shame. In fact, in me, even though I trained in pediatrics, I still send uh, patients off to pediatric dermatologists at local uh, tertiary care centers. And we're in the middle of, uh, you know, it's two hours to Chicago, two hours to Indianapolis, and three hours to St. Louis. So uh, we, we have to refer patients out just because things get uh, complicated. I just, uh, this earlier this week, I saw 
five-year-old girl with a congenital nevus on the labia majorum. Uh, sure, it's growing with time, but now she's getting three really dark speckles within it. Now, the likelihood of three multifocal melanomas within is vanishingly small. In fact, probably close to zero. But I'm not going to say, oh, don't worry about getting three new dark spots in a congenital nevus. Somebody else is going to see that child. So, um, a couple quick tips on what I do differently with children that I don't do with adults. Uh, when I'm doing a KOH, I, you know, sometimes I've seen pictures of the way people describe how to do one, take a scalpel blade and scrape. Well, you, you never put a, KO, a scalpel blade near a child. I, st I did that once with a child with who I thought had scabies. And, he pulled his hand away, and next thing I know, there was blood all over the place. And the good news was, it wasn't my scalpel. It just, they had some uh, bad, uh, uh, bad dermatitis, and they just got a little fissure. If you're doing a KOH on a scalp, you want to throw in a bacterial culture, because sure, it looks like a carry-on, but it can be, um, you know, staph or other secondary infection. Uh, if you're doing scalp, I don't do just a KOH unless I can uh, demonstra uh, demonstrably find in, you know, um, the, the spores. I want to do a fungal culture also just to justify treatment. And the woods lamp I find unhelpful. Your old books will say, use a woods lamp and if it glows in the dark with the woods lamp on the scalp, that means that it's uh, tinea on the scalp. The problem is lint glows in the dark, okay, because the fabrics that have uh, additives that make things bright have fluorescent dyes in them. Uh, that's number one. Number two, serum fluoresces under the microscope, excuse me, under a woods lamp. And if you uh, go on that, there's, you're going to run into trouble. The old uh, epidemiology was that most fungal infections of the scalp in children for, were from microsporum uh, canis and other microsporum uh, species. And I've seen one of those in the last 10 years, maybe, and most of them are trichophyton species. So if you're reading a 20-year-old text, the trichophytons don't fluoresce. So you're going to be missing the right ones and treating the wrong ones. So Woods Lamp's great for other things. On procedures on kids, I mentioned the scabies preparation. I just, I, I use one of two things. I either use uh, a, a, an applicator, you know, wooden Q-tip stick, and I snap it in half and get just the right kind of angle on it, and I use it to just clean underneath the nails because the kids have been assiduously scratching and collecting eggs, eggshells, busted apart uh, scabies mites, and there's nothing sharp, you know, you're in essence using a toothpick and you're not going to harm the child. We've got old, dull curettes in the office that we deliberately don't sharpen, that we use also to, you know, stir around infected epidermal inclusion system. We use those to just gently scrape the web spaces and the burrows, nothing sharp. The other thing I do is if somebody brings in a child, I think they've got scabies, well, they're bringing the child in. I look at their wrists. I do a KOH prep on them, on another patient. Um, I'm going to. The uh, procedures, you know, you have to decide who's going to be in the room when you are doing a procedure on a child. If you've got one person who says, oh, I faint all the time, or, you, you know, it's okay for them to cry. It's just not okay for them to faint. And they have to be the good, strong parent. And always now use the topical anesthetic. Back when I was starting in training, we just didn't. But we've got such good topical anesthetics that it's always worth waiting the extra time, even if you're late and pick a site where the scar is not going to show. Because if I do a biopsy on a 40-year-old, it's very different from a 6-year-old where the scar is going to show uh, more time. So that's all my folksy stuff. Now uh, I'm going to unfortunately have to go fast. I want people to ask questions. So I don't know. If you have a question, just walk up to a mic and I'll stop, or put your hand up and I'll stop.
but we prefer that you uh, ask questions at the mic so it gets recorded. But if you don't, if it's going to take too long, just shout it out. I'll repeat it. It'll get recorded, and we'll go. So I know it's a lecture format, but, I, but, but it's much more valuable if you have something to ask. I address this birthmark terminology because, uh, you know, the, nevis, the word nevus used to be confusing for me because you say, okay, you've got a nevus flamius, and then you've got a congenital pigmented nevus, and then you've got epidermal nevi. So what in the world is a nevus? Uh, nevus just means any kind of birthmarky thing, and they can be vascular, they can be epidermal, they can be from oil glands, they can be all these things. But you know, when you talk to an adult about a nevus, you're generally talking about a nevocellular nevus, a junctional, a compound, or whatever. So it all gets very complicated about which lineage the cells have to be. So just go back to the lineage of the cells. So you have to unlearn some of the terminology, or at least decode it to yourself. And so I like to talk about nevocellular nevi, and those are the ones where they were intended to be pigment cells, but instead they go a little bit goofy and they clump up a little bit and they make themselves into a junk junctional nevus. And of course, there are all those nevus uh, terminologies which don't have nevocellular cells, like a nevus sebaceous, a nevus flamius. So nevus cells are melanocytes that have gone astray. Uh, you typically see them as a little, this is not the congenital one, this isn't the one you see first born. Okay, these are the ones that show up when they're two or four or whatever, and they start at the dermal epidermal junction. Uh, they then sometimes um, grow down into the dermis, keep making pigment, and then, as you know, they can lose their pigment as a natural and normal phenomenon later. So, junctional nevi, when they're Nice green. So when they're flat, they're at the dermal epidermal junction. That's supposed to be a capital E. Um, compound nevi, they're pigmented, dermal epidermal junction and down in the dermis. And then as they mature, this is where the aging diva has got the elevated nevus that used to be dark and now has to paint it with a little bit of mascara because it's more youthful to have some pigment in it. I don't think that's quite so fashionable anymore but maybe Lady Gaga. So what about the brown pigmented mole which is present the day you're born? So this is a congenital nevocellular nevus. And the number is that they're about one in a hundred. Maybe not quite that many in my experience, but that's pretty high. And guess what? Small, medium, and large, uh, also called garment nevi. Uh, we manage them extraordinarily differently. Um, with the small ones, there is, a, there is some melanoma risk later in life. Uh, we all, I always recommend watchful waiting. I don't think there's any reason to subject children to local anesthetic. Uh, you have to let them grow because the risk of them becoming a small congenital nevocellular nevus is so low during childhood that you can watch it through their teens and then you can excise it later on in their late teens. And we're not going to talk about how to do that. So here's a poor quality picture of a compound nevus. It's got some, erith, some redness at the margin. So survival tip, don't hurry up. Don't listen to the mom who says, cut it off now. They will look better, OK? Because they'll look worse. The children's skin have very high elastin content. They're very elastic. So you cut off the nevus. And if you've ever done this, uh, you know the nevus, the specimen, shrinks up because the elastic tissue pulls it small. And the defect that you think is going to be four millimeters in diameter is now eight millimeters in diameter. So you're ended up closing it under tension, and the scar spreads with time, and it looks worse than it should be if you just wait. OK, so the great big large uh, garment nevi, where it involves a whole back or a whole shoulder or a hip, uh, I've got two of these people in my practice, three now actually, who've had massive uh, excisional surgeries during their childhood, which is apparently appropriate because there's a very high risk of developing a melanoma in this huge sea of pigment cells. And the published data is actually that it's about 12%. And 
it's not as though you can stall because the melanomas develop early. So these people end up spending their summers off in pediatric, uh, in children's hospitals having uh, several or multiple plastic surgical procedures. And of course, they end up uh, with massive scarring. I had one mother accused of child abuse of her son because of his multiple scars all over his back by uh, somebody who lets, oh, I'll just say it fast, some idiot at the school who made an incorrect accusation. So here is a so-called bathing suit nevus. And if you see this in childhood, that just, that child gets, you know, it's not an emergency, but they will be at a children's hospital. Any questions about nevicellular, nevi, congenital, and other? Thinking about this um, this morning, I didn't put anything in here about melanomas in children. Is there anybody in here who's seen a melanoma in a child? Anybody under 15? A number of hands went up, yeah, all across the place. Nope, yeah, some over here. So, yeah, well, that's the way I feel about melanomas in children. And the published, so, and it's interesting because this, this has changed during my career. Early on, there would be a couple of hands up in a room full of pediatric dermatologists. And now, uh, we see more. I've been in practice for 23 years now, and I've had three melanomas in children. One is a, uh, one was five, and he had a level five melanoma down to the subcutaneous fat. Uh, had it excised a year later. Had a lymph node in his groin, which was excised. Yes, it was uh, melanoma in the lymph node, and he's now. Uh, just completing his master's degree in accountancy, so he's still alive. And I, these are often genetic, but interestingly enough, 15 years later, I took a melanoma off his father and his grandfather. So the genetics went backwards in this one. Normally, you'd be looking on, out for the kid. And a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old also. So if there's one, the data are one melanoma in every million children, 15 and under, I haven't seen three million, so, and I think that the data, I, I think that the incidence is increasing. So you don't get to play statistical medicine on nevi in children. You have to evaluate them, you know, all the regular uh, criteria for melanoma, and then you have to either excise them, biopsy them, or refer them. Uh, if, they, if they meet some of those criteria, most of the time they'll be spits and nevi, they'll be something else benign. Questions? All right, so vascular lesions are actually the most common so-called birthmark, and the infantile hemangiomas are actually not present at the time of birth, or else they're a little tiny blush. These are the ones that you uh, watch grow up, and they get uh, deeper and redder and purple. Uh, so they grow, and then they involute. They can be superficial, or they can be deep, and we'll show some pictures of both. And then the vascular malformations, a whole separate category, those show up, they're there at birth, they're already developed in the child in utero. I'll let you read that on your discs at home. So this is one, I'm sorry about the quality of the picture, but this is one of those ones, uh, I've, I'm actually managing one right now, and it, centrally, this one doesn't have the central color, but it's just got this deep bluish, and you can just imagine this tangle of dilated uh, vessels. Uh, here's one on a, uh, well, that's out of order, okay. So here is just a superficial component. These are the ones that grow and that we typically have said, oh, don't worry about it, they'll grow, they'll involute, they'll fade, and by the time your child's four, they'll be normal. Here is a superficial and deep one, and it's currently involuting. And you tell that because of these areas of uh, either flesh-colored or grayish-white. This one now, at this point, this is up in, you know, here's a shoulder, uh, an arm, a an axilla. So this is one that we would now probably put on propanolol. You all know about using propanolol for infantile hemangiomas. It's the most exciting thing about uh, childhood hemangiomas for a long time. Talked about systemic risk for some of these findings. Um, you worry about 
children with vascular lesions, midline, back, the so-called so, I'm so sorry, the midline back area, uh, you worry about uh, visual axis obstruction, okay, that is an emergency, uh, airway obstruction, and by the mouth. So facial hemangiomas are a whole different subset. The, the data, and I have every reason to believe it, is that if, uh, if, if you have a um, large hemangioma which blocks an infant's visual axis, even when it involutes and goes away, they will be cortically blind. Their brain simply won't be used to processing information from that eye. So those need to be treated as an emergency by pediatric ophthalmologists, referral to a children's hospital. They need to be treated quickly. Same thing, obviously, with airway obstruction. And the ones in the midline back, the midline uh, neck, uh, central face, need to be considered for uh, deeper vascular malformations an algorithm for how to uh, go through this. And this is in the big book by, uh, I look at it every day. The big two-volume black-covered dermatology text that everybody has. So over the last few years, somebody was treating a hemangioma with our old technology, which was lots of steroids, either oral or injected intralesionally, and it wasn't getting better, and the child had high output heart failure by putting so much uh, cardiac volume through the AV malformation of their large hemangioma. So they put the child, had been resistant to steroids for a few months, put the child on propanolol, and I'll be, you know, they were shocked. Over the next couple of days, week, the thing started to involute dramatically. And it's been repeated, and it's uh, actually, so, you know, it, it, it's on a protocol. I've managed, I don't know, five or six kids with this at this point. The problem, the, the problem is you can end up with uh, increased, it's beta blockers, so you increase with uh, respiratory and cardiac rate problems. So I, I did want my first one as an outpatient, trying to titrate the dose up to avoid the side effects. Now I just send all of them to the hospital, be managed by a pediatric hospitalist, build them up on their propanolol, and they send them home. And it is absolutely remarkable. So you'll want to look into this. And if you're not doing this, this, is, this will change the way you view uh, pediatric hemangiomas. And it's a huge accidental step forward. Um, not going to see this too much. It'll probably be on some test, but I hope you've all passed all your tests you need. Sturgy Weber, in which there is a, and this is, this is one of those ones you see the day they're born, in the uh, first dermatome of the ophthalmic nerve on the forehead, the eyelid, uh, and then they also can have ocular abnormalities. They have neurologic problems like uh, seizures, uh, and you treat these, uh, the Port Weinstein, with a laser early in life and I'll show you why now. So here, this is actually got a larger distribution. It's the, not only the first branch of the ophthalm, uh, uh, but also the second, uh, a little bit down onto the third. Uh, this is not Sturgy Weber, okay? This is also a Port Weinstein, so-called. It still will look bad later in life, but you don't have to worry about the eye findings. You don't have to worry about the neurologic findings because it's not up here. And here's what happens when they don't get treated, because those ectatic vessels, they just get deeper and redder and purple. And you know, at this point, there are, are some laser things that would be helpful. And you're looking at uh, dermablend and cover mark for him. You can imagine you know, the expression, biology is destiny. Nobody lays eyes on this man without noticing that. Changes your life. So I'm going to take a little breath and a sip of water and try to not make any funny noises on the microphone. So do, does anybody here have any great, just put a hand up, uh, experience with treating the pediatric hemangiomas with propanolol? Yes, okay. So it's out there. But, you know, this is really exciting. One of my, uh, I think Gina came back from one of the meetings and was, all excited about this too, so it really is a step forward. So epidermal nevi, not quite so common. They're simply warty. They look like a seborrheic keratosis. They're often linear, they're superficial. There is a 
of course, an epidermal nevus syndrome in which people have lots of these in skeletal abnormalities, but you'll see lots of epidermal nevi and maybe never the epidermal nevus syndrome. So here's one of these things, and it could be linear warts, it could be linear lichen planus, it could be linear psoriasis, but this is one of those things that was present when they were born, just from the look. How do you manage it? With difficulty, because you'd have to destroy the full thickness of the epidermis down through the dermal epidermal junction. It'll lead some scarring, and it's a hard management problem. Nevus sebaceous, okay? This is the, one of the more common head and neck lesions. I suspect most of you have seen this, all right? Typically a hairless spot on the scalp, kind of pink and pebbly. I can't imagine that I've ever seen one of these where the parents didn't blame uh, forceps delivery uh, and a birth injury. Uh, even, uh, the forceps probably weren't used. Um, but you also see them on uh, non-hair-bearing skin of the face and neck, and in which case they're just rough and pebbly, a uh, little pink. And then with adolescence and the androgens driving your oil glands, they get a little bit yellowish. So, hairless, rough surface. They get more papular as a teen, and in fact, we always stall them to have them excised under local instead of under general uh, once they become uh, a little older. But um, they often will develop these papular warty lesions in them, and then they'll off sometimes get erosions and then I'm going to make myself really happy today. One of the other benign malformations they get is a syringocystadenoma papilliferum. And it's always fun to count all those syllables. Uh, it's a, just one of those things that happens. They do get basal cells carcinomas within them later in life, 10% of them. So the recommendation in the textbook is refer these patients when they're teens or young 20s, have them excised, and that way they don't run the 10% risk of getting a basal cell later. And I don't always follow that, because if I see 1,000 of them, that means I've done 900 surgeries or referred for 900 surgeries to prevent 10 basals, you know, 100 basal cells. So recently I took one, uh, a, a large basal cell off the scalp of an 85-year-old lady, maybe 80, who had had a rough, warty birthmark there for her whole life. But I've also got a smart nurse who had three in a pattern, and we just took the basal cell one off and left the other two, because she'd lived with it long enough. So you get to manage these as you wish. They don't kill anybody, but they're pretty darn common. So here's sort of a standard issue, nevus sebaceous. I didn't put in a picture here of uh, cutane congenital uh, aplasia, uh, which you'll also see, which looks like a little scar on a scalp, where simply the uh, dermis, epidermis, and hair follicles never migrated in. That looks different because that looks like a scar, and this looks like a pink warty patch. This goes to, no, we've got another half an hour. This is great. So this is a little bit far afield. We're going to talk briefly about mast cell disease. Okay, your mast cells, we don't talk about too much. They are distributed in your lungs, your gut, your skin, very widely distributed. They make histamine. They make some other things too. But histamine, we'll think about, okay? If you rub or irritate them, they will urticate. They get a lot of erythema around it. This is called Derrier's sign. It's different from Derrier's disease which we're not going to talk about, but Derrier's, it's the same guy. And it's not Derrier's sign or Derrier's disease. Just don't make that mistake because then everybody laughs, so, as, as we should. So it's cheaper than a biopsy. It's more easy than a biopsy. Refractory, oh, shouldn't say refractory. It should just say solitary. A solitary lesion we call a mastocytoma. If you see multiple small ones, then it's urticaria pigmentosum, which, like all these other things, is a misnomer. They're not really pigmented. They are kind of a dusky bluish brown, but you'll see, you'll, you'll see them once in a while. This is a, an extremity, and somebody has a little tiny bump on their knee, and if it gets rubbed or scratched, as they will sometimes, they get this big edematous spot. Uh, the history, these are typically seen in uh, toddlers, 
under a year, somewhere in there, and you get the history of this frequently getting inflamed, blistered, and of course, by the time you see them, maybe a herpes culture's been done because they say, well, it keeps coming back in the same place and it blisters, so we did whatever herpes kind of uh, study we do. We've done, we put them on acyclovir and it still keeps on doing the same thing. And it's just because the mast cells are supposed to be at little onesies all here and there, and they just over-proliferate in one clump. So the amount of histamine they make, instead of you know, 50 cells where an insect bite goes, it's instead 5,000 of them, and they dump so much histamine that it actually blisters up. And you'll see one of these every three or five years, and then you're the hero because you save them all sorts of stuff. You can just use topical high-strength uh, steroids, just paint it on with a, with a swab. I just use a little bit of uh, sample stuff. The urticaria pigmentosum looks like one of those awful systemic diseases because the kids come in and they've got multiple uh, dark little spots and you start thinking, well, what is this? And uh, you can do biopsies, they can do cheme sustains. I always end up doing a biopsy. And I see this in kids and young adults. Uh, I see it in adult adults and sometimes it goes away. These patients, however, you have to be careful because there are certain things that non-specifically degranulate your mast cells and make them dump their histamine. And that's things like aspirin, that's things like narcotics, and they can actually anaphylax. So once you make the diagnosis of urticaria pigmentosum, the parents have to know they have to, you know, that might be a, I've never gotten a medic alert thing for a child, although I suppose you would for peanut allergy and the others. Um, they really, and, and, and um, anesthesiologists need to know this because they could actually anaphylax if they dump enough histamine all at once. So here's Derrier's sign, and those are little tiny spots. It also works, by the way, on urticaria pigmentosum, but since it's a non-trivial condition, I want a biopsy in the chart Die, you know, for, for proof. But before you do the biopsy, you say, oh, is this a couple of, is this scabies or something else? And you swipe with a pen cap or a tongue blade and it urticates. Then you say, all right, now we're going to do a biopsy over here. If you do your biopsy where you did your uh, tongue blade wipe, it won't be diagnostic because the Gimsa stain stains the little tiny granules that get released with pressure or other stimuli like narcotics and aspirin. So don't do the one you've urticated. You have to let it reload with material. Otherwise, uh, the pathologist won't see them as mast cells. They'll look like any other little round cell that they see in the skin, like a lymphocyte. Anybody have any great stories about urticaria pigmentosum? We have the possibility of, I, I've treated some of these patients with PUVA because ultraviolet B doesn't get down far enough into the dermis and you can actually make this all better with PUVA and then it'll all come back. So they either have to be on a, you know, on a constant PUVA dose or you, they have to just learn to tolerate it and live with it. So next, juvenile xanthogranulomas. These are an acquired lesion. They are not a birthmark there. So they show up oh, in toddlers. They look a little bit like a spitz nevus. They're often uh, yellow and brown, but they can be red. Uh, they look like a spitz nevus, and what they are is some tissue histiocytes which have absorbed uh, extra lipid, much like the pathology of the xanthelasma that you see on the eyelids of uh, older people, but they get elevated. Um, so that one, that's a JXG, which is easier to type than juvenile xanthogranuloma. And uh, if you looked at that and said, that's a, that looks like a spitz nevus, then you'd, I'd say, well, yeah, you're right. So you're going to want to do a biopsy there. And I don't remember the early thing where I said, oh my goodness, it's a child. If that were a 40-year-old, you'd say, sir, I have to do a biopsy. Who wants to do a biopsy on that child? But it needs to be done. 
you know, none of us. And uh, I suppose there are people, I don't uh, do enough children that I've integrated, I don't know, uh, light local, but I suppose that if I saw enough children, I'd do some other way of calming down this sweet little kid. So Spitz nevi are in the melanocytic nevus category, and they show up in children. I don't know, I don't see too many. I don't recall seeing any before age eight. But uh, Sophie Spitz published an article in London, of all places, 1945. If you recall, there might have been a war going on, but she published an article describing something called benign juvenile melanomas, which, of course, speaking of confusing technology, terminology, is it a melanoma or is it benign? Because last we knew, melanomas aren't benign. And um, pathologically, they really look like the Dickens. The pathologist says, uh-oh, this is a melanoma. And then what they do is they say, oh, don't, oh, then they look at the date, the age. They say, oh, it's a 12-year-old, and it looks like a melanoma. Uh, there, but it doesn't act like a melanoma. So they used to, they used, people used to feel more comfortable just calling them that. Uh, they can be pink, they can be red, they can be uh, very dark, and they microscopically are, this is high-tech terminology, very scary. And the um, pathologists now have got the dilemma of saying, you know, they've got some criteria, they've got Camino bodies, and these are the long pathology reports you read from your referral dermatopathology labs where they, waffle on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, and then you have to re-excise them anyway. So you live through this. It's just um, so unfortunately, since it, I, I think fortunately, um, Dr. Bernie Ackerman stopped call, you know, said, let's call these spits nevi instead of benign juvenile melanomas, because that just drives people crazy. Here's a sort of a standard picture of one on the back of an ear. That's one with pigment. This is one you won't see too terribly often, the histiocytosis family. And these are, uh, well, fortunately, they're kind of rare, but they'll be on your tests. I, maybe you're all done with your tests. I hope so. Uh, um, but they're, 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 they're incorrectly maturing or quasi-malignant Langerhans cells, which are the antigen-presenting cells in the epidermis. So a new antigen comes by, the longer Hans uh, cell finds it with one arm and with the other arm touches a lymphocyte and says, here, this is what you have to pay attention to. Okay, and that's what a longer Hans cell does. They present antigens to your lymphocytes family. And they can go bad like everything else. And they've got three different names. There's letterer seaweed, and I've seen two of these uh, in the last few, in the last 15 years. Um, um, and they end up with sort of a severe uh, seborrheic dermatitis pattern in the scalp. They end up with a bad diaper dermatitis, uh, axillary dermatitis. And, it, and if you've got a good enough eye and you've seen enough of these dermatitides, you say, that's just not ordinary eczema. That's a little something else. And then there are other subsets. And they, you know, I've never seen this one. Uh, my, one of my letter of seaweeds actually eroded uh, his middle ear with uh, the disease. And this doesn't, this, this looks great here, but uh, up here it doesn't project so well. But it's sort of a greasy, waxy, odd looking uh, disease. And the one I saw most recently was sent by a family, was referred by the mother after the family practitioner watched this kid for six months and said, whatever you do, don't go see a dermatologist. They'll want to do a biopsy. And oh, the child's, the other thing that happens is they get their teeth early and then they fall out early. So the child I saw was like 18 months and already had had like seven teeth come in and five fall out, which is distinctly abnormal. The other thing he said was, and don't go to an oral surgeon. And any one of those would have this in the database and say, oh, child's doing fine. She's grown up. Now, I don't mean to put the fear in you. You know, this is, 
this is kind of an ordinary enough looking diaper dermatitis. So every diaper dermatitis you don't have to think is letter or seaweed disease and requires biopsies. But if you got an intractable diaper dermatitis and also has some bad scalp disease and some axillary disease, throw that into your thought process because if you don't think about it and you don't know about it, you won't see it. But you'll see 5,000 diaper dermatitis patients for every one of these. So think about it, then don't diagnose it. Um, that's supposed to be facial histiocytosis. Um, there are benign and malignant histiocytoses. They're, again, they're rare. If you see something with a child with this, you're going to treat them as though it's insect bites or whatever. If they don't get better, then you do a biopsy. <sighs> Pigment abnormalities. Really complex topic, and even though I did pediatrics and dermatology, I still go back to the books and I see these hypopigmentations and the hyperpigmentations, and I keep trying to make some sense. And is this a syndrome? And I'm missing something that's going to have, you know, bone abnormalities and a child with seizures. Um, and the answer is, so far, not so much, but they exist. So you all know about Mongolian spots, you know, the sweet little baby's born, you flip him or her upside down, and the melanocytes simply haven't gotten into the uh, epidermodermal epidermal junction, and they function for all purposes just like a blue nevus that's broad and diffuse. They generally resolve with time. So, oh. I'm not even looking at my own slides, but yes, they look like blue nevi pathologically, the sacrum back, and you know, you just have to pay attention to the difference between child abuse and a Mongolian spot. And it, go, it resolves. And this is not the classic Mongolian spot, it's this diffuse bluish or blue-gray stuff. I don't know about the word Mongolian. It's a little more common in African Americans. It's a little more common in Asians. So I don't think it has anything to do with the Mongolia. Nevis avota is a facial, dark, uh, dermal pigmentation. Cafe au lait spots. This is one that you're going to get referrals from an alert pediatrician or family practitioner or whatever, some other colleague and they'll say, this child's got cafe au lait spots. So I, you know, you, you start counting them. Uh, it is associated with neurofibromatosis and uh, I want to say Bloom syndrome and uh, one or two others. So this is one where I go to the books and I count them. And m most of the time, I mean, it's pretty, they're, they're actually quite common. I don't know that it's as high as 20% of normal people have them, but they're pretty common when there are a lot. Then you go to the family history. You go to, you know, you, if you've got a mom in the office, you say, listen, I'm going to have you put on a gown and we're going to take a look at you too because uh, if, if you think they've got neurofibromatosis. And, oh, look, I was going to say Albright's also, and I did get blooms. So you can read that at home in your ample leisure and study time. So... Now, this is somebody who does have um, neurofibromatosis. This is a cafe au lait spot. This is a cafe au lait spot. It's not a nipple. And Crow's sign, uh, this is a, a, a kind of looks like a child, but I could be wrong. Um, it does have this axillary freckling. That's so-called Crow's sign. And I don't know how many of you have uh, active adults with uh, neurofibromatosis. I've got three or four in my practice and they, uh, they don't come in for a few years at a time and then they show up and then they don't want to go to the, see the endocrinologist and everybody else. But this is just a person studded with uh, neurofibromas. It's late. One you will see more frequently in the pigment pattern is Becker's nevi. Uh, shows, you know, uh, shows up in teens. So they will, uh, they're, they're frequently on the chest, the upper back, and the shoulder, and they start in what's previously normal skin, although they're clearly genetically encoded. Um, so 
at first everybody thinks it's, oh, you know, they'll have been treated for tinea versicolor, they worry that it's a stain or a whatever, but they do acquire them sometime in their uh, 12, 14, 16, and of course if you see a girl on her upper chest who's got a palm-sized spot of brown or even bigger, it can be a whole shoulder, and some of these patients will develop a significant amount of dark terminal hair within the Becker's nevus. And of course, that can be dealt with with standard uh, hair removal technology, which is really nice for them because nobody really wants that in, uh, showing. And the other thing is you can now do, pul you can do pulse light or some other pigment lesion uh, treatments. Oh, I have to go back. So this is a little darker than I would normally expect, but I suppose he's got a little darker pigment to start with. So, so if you subtract this and then you get this, and it is just sort of a shoulder, upper back, can be on the front or the back. I don't know who Dr. Becker was. I think an Austrian dermatologist. Um, they're pretty common. You'll see one every couple years. Uh, you can be reassuring, but it's just a cosmetic thing and they want to get treated. Ash leaf spots are shaped like the little ovate leaf of an ash leaf, okay, the compound leaf. Uh, what are they, about an inch and a half long and just under an inch wide. And they're called that because um, there was a German hero, Siegfried, whose mother wanted him safe from harm and dunked him in dragon's blood, of course, again, it's always with the dragon's blood, and he was impervious to injury everywhere except on his upper shoulder where the ash leaf kept the dragon's blood from coming into contact. I think they stole it from Achilles with the heel. So these show up in infants. They're not common at all, all right? So you can go a whole career without seeing one. Um, you'll only find them if you use a woods lamp in a really darkened room and it's associated with tuberous sclerosis. So if you've got a child who's got, who's had a, this is how I typically see them. I see a child who's had a um, CAT scan or an MRI and it shows for a new seizure disorder and it shows calcifications of the brain. They send them into me and you take off their clothes and you get the woods lamp out because if you find an ash leaf spot, that's associated with tuberous sclerosis and it, the, just the ash leaf spot helps make the, uh, the diagnosis. I don't know if it's still the state law in Massachusetts, but it was 20 years ago that just as we screen, used to screen children for syphilis and you know you do all these other things to make sure that you're protecting the health of your children, oh, PKU and thyroid disease, it was the law that every child uh, born in a hospital had to be examined in a darkened room with a woods light for the early diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis. They must have had an active TS you know, information and lobbying group, which is fine with me. It's a non-invasive test, doesn't cost any money. Um, and you can uh, help with the seizures. So here is an ash leaf spot. This you can pick out. Of course, it's hard to take a photo in a darkened room with an ultraviolet light and a squirming child. So this is one where the child's got a little color and they've got this hypopigmented macule in the shape of an athlete, ash leaf. But you also see much more commonly nevus depigmentosis. And you'll see this all the time if you look as you're doing your skin cancer screenings on the back and shoulders, uh, chest of uh, even people elderly, middle age, and they've just got a spot often with a relatively irregular margin, oh, I don't know, anywhere from two to three inches, four inches, where they simply, their, their melanocytes haven't, pig, uh, haven't uh, migrated in. And there is an analogous one, nevus anemicus, where their, their uh, vessel pattern isn't quite as uh, dense, so it looks more anemic than the other skin. And you just sort of stretch out their skin, you push out the vascular stuff, and then that's how you tell the difference between nevus depigmentosis and nevus anemicus. One is a pigment issue, one's not, both nevi. So here is a classic picture, uh, the irregular margins, Hypopigmented, not 
depigmented, okay? Hence, well, it shouldn't be depigmentosis, but that's what it is. Uh, we're not going to skip incontinentia pigmenti. It's extremely rare. Um, blisters in newborns has a complicated differential diagnosis, and you hang around long enough, you'll see it all. Uh, herpes simplex, obviously. Zoster, you can get zoster in utero. Uh, scabies, if they have an inf enough inflammatory response. Uh, secondary syphilis, congenital syphilis. Uh, mastocytosis, um, one of my remarkable mastocytosis patients, the infectious disease person said, this is herpes simplex, even though I didn't grow the virus and I didn't find the immunofluorescence and it didn't respond to acyclovir, it's herpes simplex. No, it was that. So you have to keep this all going. Post-pemphigoid, very rare in children. Epidermal lysis bullosa, rare, but you'll see it. Pustules, obviously, you do the same thing you normally do with a pustule. You culture them, you do a gram stain, you look for candida, erythema toxicum, and these two are pretty common. Uh, you get, of course, acne in children uh, from exposure to maternal androgens. <laughs> hair questions, I've got a very short answer in hair questions in children. I do these, it's really complicated. They've got sparse hair, short hair, hair falls out even they've, easily. They've got hair patterns. There are all sorts of things, and these you're going to have to read about yourself. What, what I say, if, if you get two or three of these in a week, just quit and go to culinary school. <laughs> it's, it's just too hard. <laughs> and, and I didn't put that in, but I thought that was kind of cute when they had a nice basket of breakfast baked goods. Um, subdermal masses in children, you'll be referred these. You're going to have epidermal and, uh, you know, dermatofibromas, I almost, I wouldn't say that I've ever seen one in a child. You certainly will see epidermal inclusion cysts. Uh, there are other cysts that feel firmer and harder that are much more common in children. That's the pilomatricomas or calcifying epitheliomas of Mellorb, which is just fun to say. And when you start seeing midline lesions on the face, anterior scalp, neck, I should also say scalp, think deep. So if somebody says, oh, my child is five and has a little cyst on their scalp and they'll be, they'll be good, they'll hold still and you can cut it off, never, okay? Because maybe they got a defect through their skull and they've got uh, you know, a little bulge off their dura and there's a little skull and you know, I'm not going to do that. I'll do that on adults. Because you have to think about deep lesions with subdermal masses. Any anterior neck stuff, I see, I evaluate it. Then I refer them to a pediatric uh, ENT specialist. Sacral dimple. If they have a prominent sacral dimple, you can guess the size of the child. Gluteal cleft. You worry that they've got spinal dysraphism, they've got a spina bifida for, you know, occult. If you see, this is actually a little hair, it doesn't show well, so-called fawn tail. If you see a hair pattern in a kid or a teenager uh, on their lower back, uh, odds are high that they've got a vertebra abnormality, so they need a chest x-ray or an MR. That's why they have back pain. Survival trip, tip. Children aren't adults. You know, you've got so much more history and function with the, with, the, with, the, with the adults. So if you're gonna start making predictions, don't just brush things off in the children. Always send them somewhere else if you're not absolutely sure. You can always follow them along. Urticaria. I think culinary school's already filled with the people who, uh, <laughs> who didn't want to evaluate the hair. Um, I just saw a recent hennick sherline purpura case, um, autoimmune disease. I treat them about the same. Um, lab stuff, just the usuals, CBC, Cedrate or C, uh, CRP, and ANIA rheumatoid factor. Uh, you can do a RAST or you can IgE levels. And there's another thing. Uh, anti-FC, Epsilon, IgE antibodies, and that actually, it's, it's simply a marker for patients who are going to have much worse 
uh, allergic disease, okay? And it's been around for a while, but now you can actually order the test, and I tried to, uh, there's a nice uh, uh, reference here, but I tried to put the request lab number. There are commercial labs, but I couldn't find one for Quest to order it. But if you're just getting tormented by somebody who's got uh, urticaria in childhood, um, it wouldn't be a bad idea. If you found this, then they would need to go instead of coming back to your office all the time. They absolutely would need to go to a pediatric allergy immunology patient. So that's, the, that's what I just said. They need uh, consistent antihistamines, not the every now and then, and you want them out of your schedule. Ah, this is my dogma, and I don't hear this much. I say for urticaria, and this is an adults and everybody, and they're never gonna be yours. I hate seeing somebody who's been on oral steroids. Okay, oh yeah, well I take my prednisone burst and my hives go away. And I say, never, never, because they're always going to flare when you withdraw them. And then they're so happy with the steroids that they underuse their antihistamines. And now I'm toying with the idea, and I'm making this up, don't, so don't take it for gospel, that, that there's something about the steroids that actually makes them more susceptible to have worse, more prolonged urticaria uh, later on. We don't have time to go do through all the photosensitive in children. Um, but you will, we see these children every now and then in my office. Fortunately, not so much this time of year. But here is what you will see. Obviously, children can show up with the polymorphous light eruption family. Um, uh, certainly, they can have, take photosensitizing antibiotics. Porphyria, you really will see once in a while. We've got three or four patients in our practice with that. Uh, lupus, dermatomyositis, I've seen just one in the last 20 years. Uh, XP, never have seen some of these rare syndromes. I actually did have a uh, Rothman-Thompson that I diagnosed. So these are the ones when you look in the pediatric books, they've got all these fancy old-fashioned names. Uh, without any s good diagnosis. Neutrogena sensitive skin sometimes. Uh, oh, I didn't, I, I think they said I don't have any stock in any of these companies, no uh, conflicts of ethical stuff. Always look at the photos they bring in, always believe the parents and always be skeptical. But, but, but what, you're, what you really want to do, I mean, really, because they'll tell you stuff sometimes that if you ignore, you're going to just be a fool. But at the same time, they'll also lead you down the wrong path. And, and so don't, don't pick one or the other. Sit there and listen, and then you, know, you have the right. But I do like the titanium and zinc oxide uh, sunscreens instead of all the other ones. And yes, EPP, erythropoietic protoporphyria, shows up in infants and toddlers. They turn red and they sting. And here's your lab test, and there's the test you order. Ah, I think we'll stop with this one. So survival tip, crying exists, deal with it. Kids expect it, mom sometimes, dad's not so much, and you never. You don't get to cry at work. All right, so it's time for me to stop. And nobody asked any questions, so I'm disappointed. Oh, very good, thank you. Could you go over again the difference between nevus depigmentosus and nevus anemicus? Very good, thank you. She asked me to go, you heard that, but I'll repeat it anyway because it's a bad habit. The difference between nevus depigmentosus and nevus anemicus. The nevus anemicus, the blood vessels have not infil, you know, grown into the upper dermis in a, a de, the usual density of pattern. So it's paler, not because of pigment, it's paler because there's less blood flow than the surrounding skin. The nebus depigmentosus, the blood vessels have grown incorrectly. It's just that the pigment cells are there in 30%. So it's a lower dose of pigment. So you just have to develop an eye. Oh, that's, that, that color is, is, is there because there's not enough pigment, not because there's not enough blood flow. And that's the one where you take the trip, trick of squishing out all the blood from around there with a the good pressure squeeze and then you say, oh, okay, the pigment is what makes it different. Because otherwise, if it's the blood, it'll all even out. Yes? 
You, you mentioned taking the time to use a topical anesthetic for biopsies. Yes. Which one do you use? How long do you apply it for? And do you use it for punches as well as shaves? Great question. So which, uh, yes, I use it for punches and shaves. And of course, it doesn't work nearly as well for punches as it does for shaves. But um, at least what you'll get is you can get the very tip of your local anesthetic in. And, and if you, you know, because I always supplement with, with, with an injection. But if you use a small enough needle, you inject slowly enough, you maybe will get it to diffuse in slowly enough that they don't get that big, screamy, freaking out kind of thing. So, and, and by the way, it really helps having a good parent and a great nurse, okay? Um, and I actually, I use 23-7, which is like, I don't even know what it is. It's like, it's one of those things that we use now for our more complicated laser uh, protocols. But I used to use that LMX stuff, the 4% topical lidocaine. Uh, I used to use, you know, used to be able to buy EMLA, technic mixture of local anesthetic. You can buy the uh, LMX and just keep it in your office. And I've done that for, for years. But now I've got this stuff that's, I want to say it's like 23% lidocaine and 7% tetracaine. And if you email my uh, office, I'll get you the formula and where we have it made up because it's a little expensive and you have to use small doses because you can, you know, I mean, you're going to be putting on a little kid's spot, but I put it on a person's whole face to do a facial peels and they're, they, they don't feel anything. Of course, they're, I did it around a lady's lips yesterday for a lip poofy thing and she actually licked it and couldn't swallow for a while. So it's really got some power. <laughs> How long do you leave the topical anesthetic on before the procedure? Oh, I just leave it on for maybe 10 minutes. If I'm a little, if I'm running behind, I tuck my head in and I say, we're just going to put a touch more on and I'll be here in another 10 minutes while you finish up with the rest of the schedule. Because when the kids scream, it's bad for morale. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>